If you or someone you know would like to learn more or get involved in any of our research projects, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca. UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. Shannon McKenney not only had sepsis once, but three times. She went from being a carefree and active musician to being unable to function daily. To learn more about her story, I encourage you to listen to episode one of this series. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Dr. Bob Hancock, professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of British Columbia, as well as registered nurse with a master's in nursing, Sarah Carrier, from the BC Patient Safety and Quality Council to talk about the reoccurrence of sepsis in some patients, innovative early diagnostic tools, and the importance of the patient voice to improve patient safety when it comes to severe illness like sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Hancock, and welcome, Sarah. Hello. Hello there. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Hancock? Yeah, I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia, UBC Killam Professor. Um, I've been here almost forever, but certainly uh, um, more than half my life. Um, I um, work on in the area of sepsis, amongst other things, and I'm particularly interested in um, how patients respond to sepsis, which we determine by taking blood out of those patients and then um, characterising what's going on in their blood. Um, this has allowed us to um, understand sepsis is a really complicated disease that can be split up into different subtypes called endotypes, uh, which are basically uh, groups of patients with different underlying mechanisms, and also to find uh, markers or gene expression markers that are predictive of them uh, going on to severe sepsis. So we primarily look at patients in the emergency department, and we've found a set of markers that will allow us to diagnose whether they'll go on to severe sepsis. And Sarah, um, a little bit about yourself, but also a little bit about what is the BC Patient Safety and Quality Council? Sure. So thanks for having me on today. So a little bit about myself. So um, I am a registered nurse by background. Um, my stomping grounds were in critical care for um, for many years. Um, and in the last about eight or nine years, moved into the world of, of quality improvement and change management. So I work for the BC Patient Safety and Quality Council in the role of director for health system and improvement. Um, and I oversee a lot of um, improvement work that falls into the areas of acute care and long-term care. So that's where the BC Sepsis Network falls into. Um, about the sepsis network, so the council, so it's our short name for BC Patient Safety and Quality Council, um, we actually, we created the sepsis network in 2012, I believe, um, and it really was a way of just connecting uh, physicians, nurses, those in the emergency departments and eventually in inpatient units, um, connecting people across the province who were real on the ground champions around um, firstly just 
talking about morbidity and mortality associated with sepsis, and then coming up with um, spreading best practices um, around the province uh, when it comes to identifying and managing um, and responding to sepsis as well. Hey, well, so patient stories and, and hearing from patients is is really a, a great way to drive change then in, I, I mean, really in everything that, that we're doing, I guess, here today, but within that council as well. Most definitely. Um, the core of the work that we do, and I also strongly believe that you know, everybody that either works in the organization and also partners with the organization, everything we do is about making things better and improving the quality of care for patients, for people who access services, their their care partners as well. Um, Everything kind of comes down to um, what matters to the person. So what matters to the patient, the person accessing services, what matters to the care providers as well? Because I find when you ground your work in that question, um, it truly then moves into a person-centered approach. It truly humanizes the care that we provide people as well and partner with as well. And and going back to, uh, so Shannon's story, and and this is why I brought the two of you into this discussion specifically because I think Shannon's story is very much um, a story that we can we can definitely learn from and and definitely have a discussion around um, Shannon's story um, definitely can um, relate to a lot of patients that have experienced sepsis because they didn't know how sick they were, number one. They didn't realize what was happening. Uh, Shannon thought she had food poisoning. Um, she ended up being sick on a Saturday, thought she had food poisoning. I, I believe she went to emergency. It was chalked up to be either food poisoning or the stomach flu. And it wasn't until, I believe, Tuesday morning that she ended up having to go back to emergency and was finally diagnosed with appendicitis um and she wasn't symptomatic with the telltale signs of of a severe infection i don't even believe until even when the appendix had um almost ruptured and and so when it comes to diagnosing sepsis i think there is a real a, a real gap for a lot of patients and and that's where I think, you know, Bob, if you can speak to where are we going with this and where can we improve at this to help those patients? Um, I think like Shannon and like many other patients, because Shannon was one of the lucky ones. There are a lot that aren't that lucky. Can you explain a little bit about the research that you're doing? Yeah. So firstly, I'd like to say that, um, one of the problems we have here is that sepsis is not really well understood by the public as a, as a huge issue. Um, it was revealed, however, in a major paper just a year and a bit ago that um, sepsis kills about 20% of all the people on the planet who die. Um, and that was in 2017. 
in 2020 and 2021, it was probably even more because pretty well everybody who dies of COVID-19 dies of sepsis. So this is a real risk factor. So I think people are generally aware of things like heart disease and cancer as major killers, and maybe even infection as a big problem, but they're probably not as aware of this, this issue of sepsis that really is a life or death situation. Um, and amongst all of the diseases I just mentioned, sepsis is the one that carries the biggest risks with it because essentially of the people diagnosed to have um, a fairly severe form of sepsis, 23% uh, of them will die. So it, there, there, there are huge stakes here. Now, in Shannon's particular case, um, it's almost like what happens in a hospital also, which is that she was not sure of what was happening with her because her symptoms were nonspecific. And when she went into the hospital, the physician saw exactly the same thing, which is nonspecific symptoms. And if I was to tell you, what does a physician see when they go into the emergency department? Well, they'll do the usual stuff of taking vital signs. They'll see the temperature is too high or sometimes too low or the heart rate is too high or sometimes too low or the blood pressure is too high or sometimes too low. The patient may have a bit of mental confusion, but you can imagine these are all pretty non-specific things. And so it's very tough for a physician to really determine that a patient actually has sepsis. And especially on Shannon's first visit where uh, she was turned away, it's interesting that the physician's diagnosis actually coincided with her self-diagnosis of potential food poisoning because they, physicians take a lot of cues from the way the patients feel. So I think that um, perhaps, uh, you know, this is why it was not taken quite as seriously as, as it would have. Um, we've now learned, in fact, that um, ruptured appendicitis, um, we've done a, a study with some guys in Alberta, and we've learned that ruptured appendicitis is essentially a form of sepsis uh, or drives sepsis. And so it's a pretty severe condition. So appendicitis doesn't sound bad because a lot of people have it and it causes a pain in the gut and everything, but ruptured appendicitis is really, really serious stuff. So my research is basically designed to try to get around all of these issues, to try to figure out a way of uh, not worrying about what the symptoms are, but what is going on in the person's body that will eventually drive them into this severe form of sepsis. Um, and severe sepsis usually means that their organs start to fail. So they're usually multi-organ failure and, as I said, a very high risk of death. So what we've, did, what we've been able to do is take patients from the emergency departments in four different continents, and we've taken um, a small amount of blood um, that is taken as part of their routine blood uh, process. And in that blood, we can determine what's happening to a particular set of genes that are what we call biomarkers or markers that the patient is going to go on to severe sepsis. And so we've been able to study enough patients that we can tell that when these genes are expressed in a, in a, a, a much higher fashion, um, this will signal that that patient's going to go on to sepsis. So this is a basis now of a diagnostic tests. Um, we formed a company around this. Uh, we've gone public. We're fairly advanced in uh, uh, developing this test. Um, we've been able to demonstrate that it works just for the general sepsis population, but also for COVID sepsis uh, individuals. 
and it works at the very, very, very earliest time uh, in the clinic. It uses technology that's available in every hospital lab in the world called uh, PCR or polymerase chain reaction. That's a very, very simple technology. Um, and the uh, outcome is not um, a dogmatic outcome, but rather it tells the physician there's an 80% chance this patient has sepsis, or conversely, there's an 80% chance this patient doesn't have sepsis. Actually, it's a little bit better than 80%, but that'll, that'll do as illustration. So this is, uh, this is where we've been going. Uh, we've also feel it's really important to help the physician to figure out what sort of therapy they should apply. And so we've been also taking these patients and splitting them into groups that basically are called endotypes. And these endotypes have different underlying mechanisms driving their sepsis. And so these you can you can treat sepsis by treating the mechanisms that differ in each of these patients. So once you sort them into the groups, which you can again with a simple PCR test, um, then you can diagnose that this patient be, should be treated in a certain way and this patient in a different way. And it doesn't matter whether they have sepsis that is caused by a major injury or even a minor injury um, or um, by uh, 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 respiratory disease like uh, COVID-19 um, or bronchiectasis or whatever, um, uh, that uh, or appendicitis, that will that will work for all of these patients because it's not taking its cues from any particular extrinsic factor. It's taking its cues from what's happening in the patient's body. And I'm going to go a little bit deeper when I <clears throat> ask that, ask a further question then, because there's a real concern now of antimicrobial resistance. And when it comes to treatment methods of of sepsis in particular, if it's bacterial driven sepsis, would this then push those patients into the right treatment method for a specific antibiotic? So not specific necessarily, but um, there, what two things could two things would happen. Firstly, the most common treatment for sepsis is antibiotics and the most common early treatment. Um, and the reason is because sepsis is defined as a dysfunctional response of the body to infection. Um, so underlying it is an infection and you treat those, uh, if it's a bacterial infection, which is it is in the vast majority of sepsis cases, then you would basically treat it with an antibiotic. There's a big problem though, because we're kind of running out of antibiotics. And this is a, another huge area called antimicrobial resistance, which is um, where uh, the bacteria um, in our body have started to become resistant to all our, of our medically most important antibiotics. So we would like to save antibiotics for those patients who really, really need them. And I think you can see from sepsis, there are no more, no more deserving patients, no more critical patients to treat. So a great thing about a diagnostic test should be not just that it diagnoses when you have a disease, but it also diagnoses when you don't have a disease. So you can avoid using those antibiotics that will drive the development of resistance. Right. And so that's, the, I think, the nice thing about our test is it does equally well on telling you who's got sepsis and who hasn't got sepsis. Right. Yes. Okay. That, yeah, that makes total, yeah, that makes great sense. And would this be, this test then be 
suitable for all ages. I mean, I'm coming from the perspective of, uh, I mean, I had a baby that had sepsis, a neonate that had sepsis. And so would this test then be suitable for all ages? So we're not quite certain about that because we've collected relatively modest number of neonates, about 100 so far. Um, so whereas we've done 500 adults. Okay. Um, and a lot of the uh, neonates are actually in Africa. <laughs> so we've uh, looked in uh, Gambia and Malawi. So we can tell that at least some of our uh, so-called biomarkers, the things that underlie this diagnostic test, uh, are um, in those infants, but not all of them seem to be. So our idea is that we'll put a lot more serious effort into this and try to find a set of markers that works a, a lot better in um, infants who present with sepsis in, um, again, quite a different way because a lot of the things that we worry about that, that tells the physician that this patient might have sepsis don't work quite so well with babies so um, or neonates. So, uh, yeah, I think there's still a bit of work to do, um, but uh, at least some of the markers, I think, will be good for those for these neonates. Well, that's, I mean, that's such groundbreaking technology. I think that's just amazing. Yeah, I think it's totally, I think it's totally cool. (laughs) Yeah, so cool. It's so cool. (laughs) And what kind of, and so Sarah, from from a perspective of a a quality improvement then, what, what kind, what does this kind of, I mean, innovation, I mean, this is completely innovative. What kind of, what does this do for quality improvement for patients then from your perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a completely innovative tool to add to the current toolbox that we have right now um, of firstly identifying and then managing sepsis. Um, I hear a lot of people ask, okay, there's all this information out there. What do I, but what do I do? Um, healthcare is incredibly complex there's a lot that people feel that they need to remember um, and there's a lot of policies and procedures and guidelines out there and so we recommend starting off with for both the person who's at you presented who's who's come to the emergency department or they are in hospital already and for the care providers to first just asking that question could this be sepsis because to Bob's point earlier on, and also what um, Shannon said as well, um, it was sepsis still isn't really that well known because it just presents in the beginning as just really general symptoms. You feel tired, you feel unwell, you might not have gone to the bathroom for a bit, but you're just exhausted and you're tired. It's sometimes so general, but it could lead to catastrophic endings and so starting off with that question first could it be sepsis then moves you into um finding you know being able to find the the latest guideline like there's a new guideline that just actually came out this year from the surviving sepsis campaign and so guidelines like that you know walk you through the questions you know help you kind of further determine you know is this sepsis? Where is it? To Bob's point, where is it not as well? So then when we are then, you know, providing care, it is the right care at the right time for the exact right reason as well. And I mean, a tool like this too, and we always, you know, from 
my time being involved in in different um, advisory capacities. I mean, through Alberta Health Services and and through Action on Sepsis and Sepsis Canada, the question um, always is is brought up around rural and remote care, and and the the access to care is so so much different when you are not in a large center. And so having a tool like this would be, um, would be a crucial piece for that, for that along, I mean, along with education and, 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 you know, education, not only of the, of the healthcare providers, but of the general public in those areas, but having a tool like this just to, just to facilitate that, um, you know, this patient needs to be transported to a larger hospital. I mean, it's not, you don't have hours or days. I mean, you have, you have minutes to make a decision on whether a patient needs to be moved from Prince George to Vancouver, um, or, you know, Medicine Hat to Calgary in our case for, for my baby, this wasn't, you don't have a lot of time to decide when it's sepsis on to decide what, what treatment option are we going to do or what are we not going to do? And so a tool like this for rural and remote communities is, is a huge step for, 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 for life and death, really. Yeah. I think this is when, you know, so if you are, you know, listening to this and you are one of those, you know, a a care provider who is working in a rural and remote place and you have most likely cared for people coming through your doors who have had sepsis, who have mostly also probably died on your time with sepsis as well. And you're aware of the constraints and the the barriers that you are facing where you are. Um, in BC here, we define quality by seven dimensions. And so if you are one of those folks who is, you know, I want to implement i want to test and implement new guidelines and bob's you know testing into your work as well we also suggest that you take that a step further by also better understanding what are the access or inability to access issues that you have um how effective is the care that you are providing right now and where do you want to take it as well. And we do have a matrix where you can actually take your problem, um, identify all the barriers and issues that you have and identify ways of addressing them as well. Because to your point, it's, it's, it, things are, are a lot more harder when you are not working in an urban area where you have access to so many things. Um, and so I think I would love for healthcare to, you know, as we kind of develop these new innovative and um, ways of providing, you know, faster, quicker care for people. I also want to keep that equity and accessibility lens in the picture as well of when we're doing this, who is benefiting the most and who are we not reaching um, and how do we continue to pull them um, and meet them where they are at, given their constraints in order for the same outcomes to happen. No, I, I mean, I agree. And so, Bob, when it comes to, I mean, I'm all for this. So how do we, how how does this get to where it needs to, to go? Like, what stages are we at in having this tool available? I mean, 
it to me it seems like this should have been happening last week or 10 years ago right like i mean i've been through i've lived this so if, when somebody that has lived this before hears that this is available um this is the kind of stuff that gets me excited that this is this is exactly what is needed right i mean i i spoke with um, Dr. Pascal Lavoie in another episode around uh, um, a diagnostic tool as well, a blood collection to eliminate the amount of times a baby needs to be poked to check for sepsis in a neonate as well, a study that's being done. Um, and then speaking with, you know, Dr. John Boyd around his experience in the ICU. And it's the exact same scenario, it, which is crazy to me that in ICU and an intensivist role that sometimes even as an intensivist, it's the same scenario as an, an eMERGE doc that they are, they're seeing the same symptoms of, you know, non-specific symptoms in the ICU, but just more severe, right? These patients are just, they, they can't speak. They're at the verge of being intubated. They don't want to be intubated, but it's either you're intubated or you die. And, but they're not quite, still quite sure if this patient is actually septic or not. They're not quite sure what's wrong with this patient still in the ICU, but yet we're on, we're at the point of mechanical ventilation. And so we, we need this tool so that these patients are are not getting to the point of mechanical ventilation because that tool could eliminate that piece of it really if you're if you're on the right treatment path um earlier and quicker you may you may some patients may avoid well you'd you'd avoid a ruptured appendix i'm sure um and you would avoid you could avoid mechanical ventilation yes yeah, so i Obviously, I, I started about the, on this whole adventure about eight years ago, before which I knew nothing about sepsis at all. But in fact, um, I had a, um, a visiting graduate or graduate student come to me from Columbia, as it turns out, and her dad had died of sepsis. So she wanted to work on sepsis. I thought, well, okay, sepsis, bacterial diseases, pretty well the same stuff. So <laughs> we should be able to start on this. So she's the one who really initiated. And interestingly, um, she initiated it largely because she worked together with Dr. John Boyd, who is one of the names you just mentioned. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, it, you know, what comes around goes around. Um, the thing is, though, that it took us a long time to raise enough money to do a really, truly large international study. Um, and uh, we spent uh, hundreds of thousands to getting onto a million dollars to develop this, um, really without a huge amount of uh, specific funding. Because it's been very difficult. It's very difficult to get money for groundbreaking stuff, because uh, the uh, granting agencies always tell you, "Well, it's not known whether that will work or not," and so it's always difficult. But we are where we are now, and I, we've, we're at the stage now where we've been able to use this to raise money uh, pub publicly for a for through a company. Um, we have enough money to. Um, get our stage to uh, re regulatory filing, which is called a 510K in the USA. Um, and uh, we've uh, got the diagnostic test almost worked out. Um, so we're anticipating that we'll be able to uh, submit a 510K for approval somewhere in the third quarter of this year. And um, that should 
uh, in the US, you have to get a response within six weeks. So uh, within six weeks of that, we will at least hear how much more we have to do um, to get this into a regular test. So that's one thing, but I just uh, commenting on something that Sarah said, which is uh, how do you do this in, in and yourself, but how do we do this in remote communities? Well, there you need to have something even simpler than the technology we're developing now for hospitals. And the nice thing is this technology is quite compatible with uh, handheld devices or what you call bedside uh, medicine. And I think that, that will be the next evolution of this diagnostic test, creating something in a, in a, a small device that is relatively inexpensive and can be utilized in a remote setting um, in order to diagnose patients. I'm here rooting for you. So <laughs> I'll have you back on at next year when it's all up and running, hopefully. So, I, I mean, I, I just, yeah, it's just amazing. I think just to devote your time to, to eight years is, is probably not long in the medical field <laughs> for the amount of time that you go to school for. But like, that's, I mean, my daughter is almost eight. So you started this when when Ellie was essentially when Ellie was born and became sick. And so this is, this has been a long time. And so yeah, there, there is a reason for the, why it's been such a long time. And that is that um, as sepsis, as, as like medicine has developed, the view of what sepsis is, has changed quite dramatically. So it used to be that sepsis was associated with a thing called the cytokine storm, which is that your body just essentially goes inflammatory um, and it, the whole body goes inflammatory. And you can imagine, you know, when you cut your finger or something and you get inflammation, all sorts of bad stuff happens, but in a very local fashion. Now imagine that in your entire body, right? And so that's what that was the view of sepsis when I first started in this field. And it turns out that this diagnostic signature actually diagnoses um, a, uh, a mechanism that's almost the opposite of that, which is actually, um, say, sort of immune suppression. So your immune system is actually partly suppressed. So it takes a long time to get from where everybody accepts that sepsis is an inflammatory disease to where people start to accept the fact that, well, maybe not. You know, maybe there's a new way of looking at the same disease. And I think that's what's really made it complicated. Plus, uh, you know, the things that you've mentioned, and I'm sure you've seen across these podcasts, every single patient is an island unto themselves with regards to the history, the uh, symptoms, the treatments, the experiences that they had during sepsis. Um, so it's taken a long time to, to boil all that stuff down and find that, yeah, actually they do have some things going on that are common to all patients which is the cool thing that I think we've been able to get at. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, unfortunately, in the, because of a pandemic, it has definitely been able to solidify that there are long-term sequelae from critical illness. Yes. COVID has been a driver for, you know, long COVID has is essentially identical to post sepsis syndrome in patients. I mean, it's just so if there's any sort of, I guess, light at the end of the tunnel from COVID-19 is that post sepsis patients now may have some sort of hopefully 
validation of their symptoms that they've been experiencing because of of what COVID-19 patients have are now experiencing with long COVID. Yeah, I'm also very um, enthusiastic about the idea, which is just an idea at this stage, that if we can uh, diagnose sepsis earlier on, we can prevent it from going full blown. Um, and by going and, and that itself will decrease the incidence of post sepsis syndrome. It's something that we're working on now. So I, I'd be, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can make a difference there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would be wonderful because there's a lot of patients that unfortunately are suffering from the long term effects yep. years and years later. Yeah, and I think people don't realize this, especially in the COVID era, because people you know, treats some individuals as, you know, with, uh, you know, treat uh, COVID as being just kind of like another form of the flu. Um, and yet uh, it's another form of the flu that comes with it, the potential to be essentially um, in a bad situation for the rest of your life. Um, yeah, that's maybe something people should take more seriously when they're thinking about, do I, do I get a vaccine or not? Do mm-hmm. I, you know, try to use safe behaviours or not, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate you both coming on. Sarah, do you have any last thoughts? Yeah, I think for me, the last things is, you know, for those who are, you know, listening in and, um, you know, it's all about like learning more, but learning from the running from, you know, going to a place where there's really good curated information because there's so much information on the internet out there. Um, I definitely suggest like a couple of things, like firstly, you know, if you have experienced sepsis or you have a loved one who has and also might have died from it as well um your stories whether your experience was good or not so good we want to hear from them and so we the council does oversee the patient voices network and i highly suggest people go on go onto the website and, and join that to continue sharing your your story to ensure that when you are on the table, not only are you, um, you're included, you're valued and you're listened to, and it actually contributes to change as well. Um, and then we have information, you know, on the web website around just, you know, just talking just in, in general, what is sepsis? What are the the symptoms? Because, you know, we, we know they're, they're, they're far and wide um, and they're not so obvious sometimes. Um, and also some ways to kind of prevent it and, Give yourself that permission to like, if you think you have sepsis and you go to the emergency department, ask, ask that question. You, it's in your right to, to ask that. Um, and then I am really looking forward to like, you know, um, this idea. And I think we're, we're heading there around really talking more about what is post-sepsis syndrome because it can affect people for a very long time. My first kind of interaction with that was 15 years ago when my best friend at the age of 21 was admitted for which was she had septic shock um she still to this day is struggling from that and has never come back to her usual self um and really struggling with a lot of the fatigue and chronic fatigue that's associated with that and so i think the more we start kind of talking about it and um, collecting evidence and seeing commonalities, um, the best we can then determine how to then address and support um, those people who are moving through that as well. But share your story. We want to hear it. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, the whole point of this podcast was to 
to do that and to also, you know, bring together, uh, you know, the community of, of not only patients, but researchers and clinicians and, and, and to show that they're, that we are all working together to, to, you know, advance sepsis research and, and post-sepsis care for, for those who have experienced it and those who will experience it because they, it, we're not going to end sepsis, but if we can, if we can slow the, the progression of, of a severe sepsis in patients or, you know, save another life. And that's, I mean, that's all we can hope for by doing what we're doing in, in the work that we're doing collectively. So I really, really appreciate you guys both coming on today and taking the time. I know you're both so busy. And so thank you again so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. On the next episode of the Action on Sepsis podcast, I am joined by two renowned leaders in patient-oriented research. From the BC Support Unit, Research Services Lead, Larry Mraz, and Knowledge Translation Lead, Lynn Feehan, who will close off this series to talk about the importance of engaging patients effectively and appropriately in research. That's this week's episode of UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors that have come forward to share their stories, our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, researchers, and our patient advisors. If you like this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Join the conversation by connecting on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and let us know what you think about this week's topic. You can also check out our blog for resources and links to topics on this episode at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast.